We are wrapping up Becoming Family this week and next week, and then we're going to start Awkward Family Photos. And I have seven pictures from the Gospel of John that I'm going to um, walk through with you as we look at Jesus at the wedding at Cana and the woman at the well and Peter by the sea after he betrayed the Lord. These awkward family photos in the ministry of Jesus. Now, I found a photo that I thought was kind of awkward. It's some 60 years old. And uh, do we have, there it is. I don't know if you can see. It looks like they're about to depart with this station wagon. And there's a baby gripping the back. You see that? <laughs> and I don't know why or who that is. I hope it's not me and they were just going to take off without me. You may have an awkward family photo when you think about awkward family photos that you wouldn't mind sharing. Now, some of them you don't want to share, all right? And someone, some of them you have to know the backstory. But if you've got an awkward family photo that you think, hey, this captures it. You talk about Jesus being confronted by his mother at the wedding at Cana. Well, this is, this is one like that. And if you've got an awkward family photo, send it to me, email it to me or to Nathan, and we'll look at maybe using those as we walk through these in the Gospel of John, all right? So that's what we're up to starting on the 18th, and we're going to stay in that series all the way to Easter. And I'm looking forward to preaching on Easter. That's always a glorious day. hope that you and all your family will be here and your guests on Easter, April 1st, as we culminate uh, the Easter season and uh, as we culminate Holy Week. We're going to have the upper room service on March 29th. You'll want to make sure you put that down in your calendar for that Thursday night. This will be the third time that we've done this service. It is really, really special. The choir leads us. Rick will be leading us there. We'll have readings and we'll observe the Lord's Supper together in an a context something like what we're going to read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I want us to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to start reading now in verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. You may never have noticed that in the scripture, all right? But here's a church whose meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, this is verse 18, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? 
Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Maybe you didn't know that was in the Bible. (laughs) It is kind of a shock. That a church would behave this way. Outlined here. Especially considering the fact that the church, the word ecclesia is the called out assembly. It's, it's an assembly. It's a meeting. The church meets together. That's what it's done all these years. And, and he says your meetings do more harm than good. Now, Meetings are important to the human family. We have one of the biggest meetings all year in the Super Bowl today. No, we're going to have a big meeting in Minneapolis. And the folks that can't go, 111 million people tuned into the meeting to watch the contest. And I know you're hoping Philadelphia will win. And I kind of do too, but look. <laughs> and we have these meetings, and they're, they're really important. And I, I want us to emphasize the importance of the meeting. Paul writes to the church here, and he says, look, your meetings are a mess. And they're a mess because... You don't come with a prepared heart. And so I would say to you, let's have a great meeting as a church. Let's have a great meeting every time. Let's meet having prepared. Now, you'll notice that all the way through this passage, the Apostle Paul's not really talking to leadership. We know that leadership is important in any meeting, okay? But we also know that everybody brings their stuff to the meeting, okay? And everybody has an impact on the meeting. The Wall Street Journal carried a big article this week about how people judge you in the first milliseconds in a meeting. Any of you see that? And you don't have time to prepare for that first impression. You walk in there in the first milliseconds, they're deciding by your smile, by your posture, by your stance, by the strength of your handshake, by whether you extend your arm or hold it close. All these things are clues to people who come to the meeting about you. Knowing that meetings are important, many people make their living helping Folks, have good meetings. So here's what I want to tell you. Let's make sure our meetings do more good than harm. All right? That's whether it's a committee meeting that you're part of or whether it's a ministry meeting where you're going out to feed folks or whether you're coming into worship, or whether it's a meeting in the hallway, or a meeting in the lobby, or you running into somebody by happenstance in the hall of the church, let's make sure our meetings do more good than harm. 
Let's make sure that we're communicating faith and love and joy and peace and the fruit of the Spirit as we meet together. And deacons and Bible study leaders and all of those who convene meetings for First Baptist New Orleans. When I read about this, I thought about all the different meetings that we had. And I thought, Lord, help us in every one of our meetings to do good, to do well, to be better when we leave, not worse. I looked at all the translations of this verse, and the NIV has more harm than good concerning the meetings, but a lot of them have, instead of being better, the church is worse after the meeting. You know, I prayed through my ministry that God would redeem the business meetings of my churches. Because sometimes the business meeting is the hardest thing of all. But God redeems business meetings and finance meetings and personnel meetings. And he redeems this great large meeting as well. And if you were thinking, well, how do I make this meeting better where we gather in the house of worship and sing the songs, I would say to you, make sure that you come with an expectation in your heart, having done spiritual preparation before you show up. Spend some time in prayer about how God was going to work in you through his word and the song. Come with your heart ready. I've discovered Sometimes I leave and I am thrilled with what God's done. And sometimes I leave just like you. And I feel a little flat. And you know what I've discovered? It's a lot about me. It's not so much about the singer or the preacher or the prayer. It's a lot about me, what I get out of the meeting. And sometimes folks run down the aisle to say to me, you preach directly to me today. God gave you the word for, just for me today. And do you know, it was because that person came with an expectation that they were going to hear. So often it's how you get ready for the meeting as we gather in this place. I know You want to be all God's called you to be, and you want your church to be all God's called your church to be. And so I would urge you to take this moment seriously, to come to the meeting at 9.30 every Sunday, prayed up and ready to hear from God, having spent your own time in worship, not expecting that people are going to deliver worship to you, but you come through these doors as a worshiper already. For it seems in Corinth, their dispositions, their attitudes, their spiritual condition, before they ever got to church, undermined everything the Spirit was trying to do. Let's have a great meeting. Let's declare our unity in our meetings. Let's declare it because Jesus prayed, let them be one. It was the fervent prayer of our Lord in John 17 before he went to the cross. Father, 
Make them one as we are one. Let them be one like we are one, so the world may know that you sent them. Let them be one. Our, our Lord prayed this prayer, and yet so often this prayer goes unanswered in the church, and so it was in the church at Corinth. Paul starts this section by saying, look, I hear there are divisions among you. And I partly believe it, he says. I know I'm hearing from distance, but I partly believe this. He started this letter out talking about the groups that were sorting themselves in the church. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter, I'm of Christ. There were at least four of these divisions within the church. And Paul Ask them, is Christ divided? What's happened here in the church? And we get to this passage about worship and particularly observing communion together, the Lord's Supper together, and he brings it up again. He says, I hear there are divisions among you. The word divisions is interesting. It's the word from which we get heresies. Now, it's translated factions and divisions, but later on it sort of morphs into something a little bit more like heresy in the teaching and theology of the church. And Paul says, you divide up by your opinions. And that's important. I mean, we have a core to which we hold as a family of faith. We've been singing about it this morning. It is something we cannot compromise. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And people say, that's too bloody a gospel. But it comes right out of the book. And we are people who hold to the book. And we believe that Jesus shed his blood on the cross, paying the penalty for, as in the place of us. That he died for our sin. That God showed his love for us in this way. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now this is a long teaching in the scripture. It goes all the way back to the old covenant where it says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And the scripture talks about the power that is in the blood of Christ to redeem, to save, and to cleanse. That is, through his death upon the cross, he delivered us. He paid a debt we could not owe. He broke the bondage of sin as he died upon the cross and delivered us from that bondage. Now, that's the core of the gospel. When Paul gives the core in 1 Corinthians 15, a little bit later after this, he says, this is the gospel. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And he's pointing back to Isaiah 53 and other scriptures where he was wounded for our transgressions. Okay, So we have this core to which we hold. We are Jesus' people. We believe that God invaded history one time through his magnificent son, Jesus, who died on the cross for our sin, was buried, and three days later rose again from the dead. If you're having a hard time with Jesus dying on the cross and paying the penalty for sin, I want you to think about the resurrection, okay? Think about the resurrection for a minute. 
Christ rose from the dead. They executed him, they buried him, and three days later, he rose from the dead. Why? What does that mean? And now step back a step or two and ask the question, in the light of his resurrection, what does his death mean? That he laid down his life, that he told him before he went to the cross, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now you step back from the resurrection and you say, what does this mean? Okay, This is the core. This is the truth to which we hold that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Right? We do not surrender this core. And this core may distinguish us from others who do not hold to the core. And so that's one reason why Paul says, well, perhaps you need this to show who has God's approval. There's a way in which I think, well, maybe he's just joking because none of them have God's approval the way they're acting. But perhaps he is saying, look, there is a core to which you hold. And you've got to hold tight to this. Do not be ashamed of the uniqueness of Jesus. Do not back off from Jesus is the only way to the Father. These are core truths that are in the Scripture. But do not break into factions as a church. It seems that these factions that have developed that are evident at the Lord's Supper may be connected to culture and economic standing, not so much to theology. When you look at it, they're divided up based on these behaviors at the table. In, in Corinth, they had a meal every time they observed the Lord's Supper. Okay, they called it a love fest. And apparently, this love feast that they gathered to celebrate included the supper. And folks would bring, maybe it was a covered dish, we don't know, you know, maybe everybody brought their own. And maybe there were folks who were more well off and could show up early, and maybe the slaves and the servants had to work longer and they came later. We don't know why it developed like it did. Maybe the church was underwriting the meat and everybody brought a vegetable. I don't know, okay? But here's what happened. Some of the folks showed up early to the feast and instead of waiting on the other people, they just plunged right in. And they started eating whatever was being served. And when the folks who had to work longer got to church, they'd eaten all the barbecue. All right? There was nothing left for, for the folks who showed up late. And the folks that got there early drank all the wine, which was a bad idea because some of them were wobbly need when the folks got there late. Okay, let's have a great meeting. Let's declare our unity by rejecting any division of the family based on culture or economic standing, okay? Let's declare our unity by never showing favoritism 
over a person who is wealthier or more powerful than another person who may not have much in the body. Let's never do this. I'm telling you, this is at the heart of the teaching of Jesus. We cannot show favoritism and say that we are following him. We cannot despise a brother because he has less than us, or his clothes are not as nice as ours, or he drives an old car. We cannot despise, we cannot sit him in some inconspicuous place because we don't want him in the middle while we escort others who are finely dressed and in better wheels to the middle of the meeting. If we do that, we belie the gospel. We undercut the gospel. We declare in our favoritism that there is more honor being wealthy than being poor or being this color rather than this color, being from this culture rather than this culture. We cannot do this in the church of Jesus Christ. We must follow our Lord in showing no favoritism. Now, it may seem to you that that's not a great plan for church growth, all right? That people group better based on being the same. And you want to gather with people like you. And I've heard this all my ministry. And here's my conclusion after preaching the word for 45 years. I don't know how it affects number growth to treat everybody the same in the body of Christ and welcome everybody equally. But the truth now is, I don't care. I don't care how it treats how it affects the numbers. Because this is not about numbers. This is about Jesus, okay? And we want to be focused on Jesus. So at the meeting, let's clarify our values. Every person, whatever color, ethnicity, culture, or economic standing has eternal worth and dignity in the sight of God. They are the image bearers of God, however sick or crippled or poor they might be. And we declare this truth by receiving them fully into the body and treating them fully as brothers and sisters and loving them. And you say, well, that's a little uncomfortable for me. You think that's just for you? Hey, we gravitate to our own kind. I'm talking about gravity, okay? I'm talking about the natural man who cannot receive the things of the Spirit. He gravitates to his own kind. Jesus made Jew and Gentile worship together in the church of Jesus Christ because he was bringing down the walls. And the walls went up at Corinth, and the apostle Paul let them have it in this letter. And he said, I have no praise for you about this. Your meetings do more harm than good. Why? Because it's a heresy that you're practicing favoring the rich above the poor. Not waiting for those who are working until late. And you're getting together in the meeting, and you leave worse off instead of better. It's as severe a rebuke as you will find in the New Testament for a church whose practice 
undermine the very essence of what Jesus taught and preached and practiced himself. And even though it goes against the natural man, even though you may feel the need to gravitate to people like you, you are not governed by the natural man. You have the Spirit of God within you. He lives within you as a child of God, and you can and should and will act differently than the rest of the world. And I hope one day this world that is so torn by ethnic violence and war and hatred against others who are unlike, one day the world will look at the church of Jesus Christ and say of that multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-economic church behold how they love one another if we could just do that in the rest of our meetings and places if we could just be like the church and how they care for each other and love one another the world would be a different place and so the scripture says Jesus did a wonderful thing at the cross he made peace in his own body on the tree he made peace. You can read about in Ephesians chapter 2. And the peace he made, first of all, Paul says, was between Jew and Gentile. He tore the curtain wide open. He brought down the wall between these two fractious groups that hated each other. That peace he made along with the peace with God through the wonderful sacrifice of his body on the tree he brought peace it's what the world needs you know a church that deeply loves all people and the meetings that we have must declare our unity and clarify our values. And when I look at the church at Corinth, I think, what happened to this meeting where one gets drunk and the others are hungry? And what happened to this meeting? And I think the first thing is they lost their love. Love went out the window. These folks aren't practicing patience toward one another. They're not practicing basic kindness toward each other. They're not loving each other. So you know what the apostle is going to do in chapter 13? The love chapter. You've heard it in weddings. I'm going to preach on it in May, Lord willing. I want to go to the love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13 and examine what the great apostle says about love. And he says as he introduces that chapter, now I'm going to show you a more excellent way. And then he talks about love. Every person in the body has a job to do, including you. If you have received Christ and trusted in him, then you have been given a spiritual gift, and that gift is to be exercised in the body. And the Apostle Paul is saying, we want to do this decently and in order. We want to come out of the chaos of this meeting that you're having 
and develop a way of affirming every individual in the church, of loving them and caring for them, and communicating the gospel not only by what we say, but most importantly, by how we treat one another. Bow with me, please. Heavenly Father, we look at this text, God, and we say, Lord, don't let us go there. Don't let me be in that situation of arrogance and, and an attitude of indifference to others. Lord, help our hearts be right before you as we gather week by week to worship and study and work in our care effect teams and meet in our committees. God, that we will honor you at every single meeting, that there'll never be a gathering that's part of this body where we can't bow our heads and join together in unity of faith and love and start that meeting by confessing you are Lord and over every attitude and action and word you are Lord in your name we pray amen